This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode four of season five of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, and get ready. It may take you a couple of car rides to finish this one. We are jam-packed with four great stories this week, and it's our longest episode ever. From the room where it happened, to a gray ghost, an immortal life, and an explosive battle in the Civil War. We are turning back the clock on the week of July 26th through August 1st. I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. I'm not throwing away my shot because this is not a moment. It's a movement. Talk less, smile more. Because I know you're smiling now if you recognize what I've been quoting. The beloved blockbuster musical, Hamilton. It brought history to the people of America more than anything in our lifetime. We've never seen anything like it. It was important to us in Virginia because, you know, we never paid much attention to Hamilton because he's not a Virginian. But he was so much involved with Washington because they were very close and they were complete allies. And he was so much an enemy of Jefferson and and Madison. You can't understand any of that Virginia history unless you know Hamilton's story. That's Dr. Bill Rasmussen. I am the Senior Museum Collections Curator and the Laura M. Robbins Curator of Art at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. We're so excited to have you back for another episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoy being on it. Well, I do because you you have interesting topics. (laughs) I enjoy being asked to talk about interesting topics. And of course, we have some interesting guests. When Hamilton came to the stage in Richmond, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture put a little something together. So Bill's done a lot of research on Alexander Hamilton. Before we get into the real story, how did they do with the moment of Virginians in a room with a New Yorker? How did they do with the compromise? They did everything rather well. I was impressed with how accurate the play was. They did very well with it. The room where it happened, that was the the theme. So, let's talk about the room where it happened. Because on July 26, 1790, the U.S. Congress passed Alexander Hamilton's Assumption Plan, also called the Compromise of 1790. It made the U.S. responsible for states' debts. But the key to this ever happening was Virginia withdrawing its opposition. A brokered deal to get the nation's capital out of New York. 
particularly Jefferson and Madison also. And they had to get the capital out of New York because there were just merchants up there. They were paranoid. They thought they were monarchists too. They would try to get a king. And they figured they would corrupt the legislature. We've got to get the capital out of New York. So that was what they were thinking. So how exactly did they wrangle the creation of a capital away from New York? Well, first, you have to know about the politics of the time. Alexander Hamilton was President George Washington's first Secretary of the Treasury. The two worked well together, and they were close. Hamilton was Washington's aide during the Revolution. He could see that Hamilton was an absolute genius. Hamilton was involved in, with drafting of the Constitution. I mean, he played a major role in that. So he really knew how the government worked and knew how to proceed to make it work. At the time, the fledgling country was deeply divided. There's incredible polarization in this, in this decade of the 90s. I mean, it's like today and no other time in American history. They were at each other's throats. So the new government is horribly in debt. And in order to fund the war, it had to print money. The federal government had accumulated 54 million in debt. The states had accumulated 25 million. So that's like 79, 80 million dollars in debt, which was an enormous amount of money then. And there were two opposing political parties. Because Hamilton and Washington were Federalists. They believed that there had to be a strong central government in order for the nation to survive. They learned that during the war. Jefferson and Madison were all for states' rights, and they figured that the power of the state was going to be diminished if Hamilton's policies went into effect. Jefferson and Madison doing everything in their power, and very effectively keeping Hamilton's plans from taking shape. Remember, the U.S. is 80 million in debt. Multiply that by 30 is what they say to make it into today's dollars. So I guess we're in the trillions. They were arguing as to how the debt was going to be settled. Were the states going to pay off each of their own debts or is the federal government going to pay all of the debts? Jefferson and Madison believed if the federal government came in and handled the assumption of all the debts, then the federal government would be much stronger. And Hamilton saw that, yes, indeed, it would be. That's why I want to do it for one reason. And also, if we didn't do it that way, they'd be competing with one another. Each side in this turbulent time had their own newspaper. Sound familiar? Just like today, each party has its newspaper. Now we've got cable news stations, each one. I mean, it was just like it. And they didn't care how truthful their accounts were. They just put out what they wanted to put out. So there's this dilemma and these two extreme sides. But Jefferson's paranoia won out. He's so fearful that New York's going to grow in its importance and its influence. And if the legislature stays there, it's going to be corrupted by these financiers and merchants. It was against this backdrop that Jefferson ran into Hamilton on or around June 20th, 1790. The date's a little fuzzy outside President Washington's New York office. According to Jefferson, Hamilton looked somber, haggard, and dejected beyond comparison. He certainly had reason to be. He's being attacked so much. Jefferson hosted a dinner that night to bring Hamilton and Madison together to discuss the situation. Hamilton agreed, and that same night, they reached a deal. In exchange for Hamilton supporting moving the U.S. Capitol from New York to a site along the Potomac, Madison would no longer block Hamilton's assumption plan in Congress. 
delivering crucial Virginia votes for the measure. Now, Jefferson would later opine it was a mistake and he shouldn't have done it. But to get the capital right on the shores of Virginia, that was worth the trade. So that's, that's why he did it. And Hamilton did it because his plans were frozen shut, stopped. He couldn't get his bank. He couldn't get anything done. Because as we know from watching our own government work, if one side wants to block the other, they often have the ability to just shut them down completely and nothing happens. So Hamilton's plans were just dead in the water. And so he figured I got to do something to get Madison and Jefferson to stop blocking them. Because Madison was very powerful in Congress. This dinner table bargain, as it's known through history, played out in July. First, the House voted on the 10th to approve the Potomac location for a new capital. And then, on the 26th of July, four representatives from states bordering the Potomac switched their votes, and Alexander Hamilton's assumption plan narrowly passed. How important is this moment in history, do you think? Well, it was enormously important. <laughs> we, would, we would have the capital of New York City today if, if it hadn't happened. After the deal, the two went back to being enemies within the same cabinet. Hamilton as the Secretary of the Treasury, Jefferson as Secretary of State. This polarization continues throughout the 1790s, and you know Washington was appalled with, with the idea of political parties. He thought he saw that they were, weren't going to do the nation any good at all, and he warned against them, but he couldn't get anywhere with that. Jefferson wrote at one point, we were like cocks fighting one another in the cabinet. <laughs> they were always at one another's throats because he had totally different views on whether the federal government should have power or whether the state government should have power. After a while, Jefferson just gave up and retired, went back to Monticello, left the cabinet, because Hamilton was winning. And we all know what happened to Hamilton. Aaron Burr, Duel, story for another podcast. Go watch Hamilton the Musical. So who exactly won this handshake deal over at dinner? I think they both won. Jefferson thought later, maybe I didn't win, but I think he did. Eleven years later, Thomas Jefferson became the first man to take the presidential oath of office in a new capital city, built on the banks of the Potomac, a city to be named Washington. July 26th, 1790. The U.S. Congress passed Alexander Hamilton's Assumption Plan, a solution for the debt crisis, and a capital claimed on the border of Virginia, all thanks to a dinner table bargain. To quote Hamilton the musical, when our children tell our story, they'll tell the story of tonight. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. When you hear the word ghost, you might think apparition. 
maybe something coming back from the dead. That moment when you walk into a room and the hairs on the back of your neck rise up. When you feel like you're being watched when no one is around. But the ghost in our story today is not in some haunted house. I got you there for a second, right? He's a man hidden in the foothills of the Shenandoah Valley. In the 1860s, this is the story of the gray ghost of the Confederacy. It's pesky, it's sneaky, dare I say a little ghosty. We're talking about John Singleton Mosby. And for this wild ride, we are bringing you a first-time guest, and we definitely want to have her back. My name is Anne-Marie Curialason. I'm the Director of Education with the Virginia Piedmont Heritage Area. So we're an organization that interprets the landscape between really the, the Bull Run Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains in Northern Virginia's Piedmont. Mosby's story is a big part of that because the area of his operations, often called Mosby's Confederacy, you know, overlaps with with our heritage area. And so a lot of the stories that we tell, a lot of the people we discuss have connections to John Singleton Mosby. Are you from Virginia or no? So I'm a military brat, but I've lived in Virginia since I've been going to school. I'm kind of from the Fredericksburg area originally. You're not allowed to say you're a Virginian unless you've been here for like seven generations. I've been here for like 20 years now and I don't think I'm allowed to say it either because right? I grew up in Maryland. I grew up in, I'm from Maryland. That's worse. So. It's, it's worse if you're from Maryland than if you're just from like nowhere. But we have the best flag in the nation. See, I don't know. My <laughs> husband is also a Marylander, and I just, I don't, I don't agree. You don't understand our fascination with the flag, right? I think, I think that's what it is. I don't know. I think, I think if you're born in Maryland, you're swaddled with it or something. Pretty sure I was swaddled in it. True story. By the way, despite this back and forth, I really like her. Let's get to this story. Our date in history this week is July 28, 1863, when John Singleton Mosby begins a series of attacks against General Meade's Army of the Potomac. But long before we get to this moment, you need to know Mosby. What makes him tick? The person who can wreak so much havoc from the shadows. John Singleton Mosby is born in 1833 in Powhatan, Virginia. Uh, but he ends up growing up more in the Charlottesville area. His family's home is actually close to Monticello. He has this childhood memory of his father taking him out into their peach orchard and pointing to where President Jefferson used to live. Mosby, as a child, was, well, small. Today we might describe him as kind of shrimpy, a little frail. Um, he says that he got into a lot of fights as a kid and lost them all, but he would still defend himself. That was something that Mosby kind of became known for. He was not a violent man, but he would not back down from a fight. He was proud of himself even as a child for he would keep fighting, he would keep going. In 1849, he attended Jefferson's University of Virginia, 
where once again, he ran into a bully. A bully named George Turpin, who threatens to eat him up raw. He's going to pummel Mosby. He's really going to take him out. He has a reputation as a bad guy. In self-defense, Mosby shoots George Turpin and ends up going to jail. He's sentenced to jail for a year. He shot George in the neck. UVA certainly wasn't happy. Mosby was expelled. But his never-give-up drive takes over. This young man studying classics at, at UVA is sent to jail at the age of 19. And while he's in prison, he overhears the prosecuting attorney is talking to one of the guards. And Mosby goes up to the cell door and reaches out his hand to shake hands with the man who had put him behind bars. And Mosby's recollection of this was that he had been sentenced, but he'd been sentenced fairly. He had zero animosity towards this man for doing his job well. And instead, Mosby starts asking this guy about legal advice opinions, if he could borrow a book from his law library. And so this man ends up being a mentor to Mosby. And so Mosby, over the next couple of years, he sets up a law practice in Bristol, Virginia. He gets married. They start a family. It's all hunky-dory. Then, of course, a small war breaks out. You know... The Civil War. When the Civil War began, Mosby disliked the idea of secession, and he voted for the Unionist Democratic candidate, Stephen A. Douglas. But when Virginia seceded in April of 1861, Private Mosby was called into service, donning the gray of the Confederacy. Mosby had given his name to a friend who was trying to fill a log of people to make a cavalry, you know, a cavalry unit, a company, a couple of years back. So he already has his name on this list. He was reluctant when they were showing up for drills. He didn't even have his own horse at first. He'd borrow a horse to go and do the maneuvers. He finds himself going to war. He himself was pro-union. For the longest time, he did not vote to secede, you know, when they tried to ratify the vote of whether to secede or not. He was not pro-Confederacy, but he did approve of the institution of slavery. His family were in slavers. But he kind of rode that middle line where he wasn't quite one thing or the other. We'll come back to his views on slavery a little later in this episode. So Mosby joined the Confederate Army as a private, serving in the Virginia Volunteers, a company of mounted infantry that fought at the Battle of First Manassas. He's not really an exemplary soldier. He does everything he's told to. He misses a couple of muster rolls for, for a couple of different reasons. Not by his own, you know, maleficence. There's nothing that he was trying to get out of duty, but he has no dreams of a grand military career. Put it that way. But Mosby found himself a sort of mentor and hero at the start of the war, Jeb Stewart. The two were physical opposites. Mosby is 5 feet 8 inches tall and 130 pounds. Stewart is described as hardy, you know, husky. But the pair were like-minded souls, the biggest shared trait being innovative thinking. He sees himself as a small person in a great network, this grand army. But it's during this time he sees how Jeb Stewart 
is leading the first Virginia and Jeb Stewart of course has this whole cult of personality he's flamboyant he's kind of out there he's he's gregarious he's very likable and he's very much cut from the cloth that you want a young gallant cavalry officer what you want someone like that to look like in the 1860s there are a couple of expeditions that John Mosby volunteers to go and help scout for Jeb Stewart and to go, you know, collect information. And it's here that Mosby starts realizing, you know, this is a thing that I could do. The picket duty and regular camp life, that's boring, but this is fun when we're going on multi-day excursions to try and gather more information or to figure out what federal troops are doing. Mosby proves exceptional at gathering intelligence and Stewart, he took notice. And notably, during the Peninsula Campaign, it's John Mosby who has the idea to ride around McClellan's army, around the entire Union army, to see what's going on in the rear and to disrupt communication lines and disrupt supply that's coming in there. Basically give them a good spook. You're not gonna necessarily take a ton of prisoners, you're not gonna kill a lot of the enemy, but you're going to make them use more of their own forces to protect their rear instead of attacking the front. Four days later, Mosby returns to camp after this grand ride around the army, and he writes to Pauline, his wife, I'm going to use modern language here. This is the coolest thing I've ever done. This was really enjoyable. I feel exhilarated. You know, that's one word that he would use um, to describe how he felt about it was exhilarated. It wasn't necessarily a joy, but it was like a, a passion focus a thing that that he could realize. And Deb Stewart himself saw that Mosby was on that level. That he not only could think of this maneuver, but could carry it out with only a couple of men and could bring back intelligence as well as supplies and a couple of prisoners. And not die. And not die, you know, hypothetically, The goal would be that you get all yours back and and nobody ends up dying. That was one of his greatest strengths, was that he didn't die in all of these hijinks. And there are plenty more hijinks to come, because Mosby's gaining Stewart's trust in 1862, really showing what he can do. He's setting up a pattern of behavior here with riding around in Richmond and he and Jeb Stewart, he, with you know permission of his officers, he will be sent to do scouting missions into Northern Virginia, the area that will be known as Mosby's Confederacy. And so it's this pattern that enables him to ask Jeb Stewart for, you know, give me a handful of guys for the winter and I'll do this. I'll ride around in Northern Virginia, often focused around Fairfax is where the where a lot of the federal encampment is at this time, and I'll disrupt communications, I'll pick off prisoners, I'll cut off telegraph lines, whatever it is, it won't be the same as winning a major battle, but I will be a thorn in their side and they will have to commit resources to dealing with me instead of committing resources to the front. In January of 1863, Stuart placed Mosby in command of the 43rd Virginia Cavalry. That's the benefit of only having a handful of men. This isn't 500 guys that are marching back and forth and then pitching their tents at night and, you know, lighting campfires and things like that. This is a small group of men who are going to run in. They're going to grab up as many horses, many wagons as they possibly can, as many prisoners as they can take, and then they're going to run out 
and they're going to be able to stay with local families, local pro-Confederate, some of them even related to the, the soldiers that are doing this, they're going to stay among them. They do disappear. There are no tracks for the Federals to follow because they just poof, they're back into the natural landscape. Probably one of Mosby's most famous escapades was in the spring of 1863. Mosby and, gosh, maybe 20 other men, they sneak overnight into Fairfax Courthouse, into Fairfax proper, that town, which is a garrisoned headquarters of the Federal Army. There are thousands of Federal troops stationed in and around Fairfax Courthouse. These men, they sneak into Fairfax Courthouse in the dead of night. They kidnap a general. Not the general they intended, but they kidnap a general. The mythos of it goes, and this was wildly, you know, this is widely known. It was wildly a popular story at the time. They're kidnapping General Edwin Stoughton, who's a young Vermonter. He was up late the night before partying. As the story goes, it was with his mother and his sister. Like it wasn't the, you know, wasn't that debauched. But he was up last night. There were apparently champagne bottles in his room. And Mosby comes in and he's sleeping. It's like two or three o'clock in the morning. Edwin Stoughton is dead asleep. And to rouse him, Mosby says that he lifts Stoughton's nightshirt and smacks him right on the behind to wake him up. And Stoughton jerks awake and says, you know, what is it? What's going on? And Mosby says, sir, have you heard of Mosby? And Stoughton says, of course I've heard of him. Have you caught him? And Mosby, the famous line back is like, no, Mosby's caught you. And so they managed to take this general, sneak him back downstairs, all the way back out of Fairfax courthouse before daylight past his, his own men. Mosby's mystique and the unit's fame only grew. And because of his ability to seemingly appear and disappear at will, he garnered the name the Grey Ghost. All of the Northern papers go bananas about this. It's one of those things that you can't make this up, right? It's too, it's too good. And of course, the Southern papers were just beside themselves with glee. Again, Edwin Stoughton, it's, he was like a 22 year old. He hadn't necessarily proved himself in battle at all, but just the egg on the face of the United States after something like this, it was more than worth it. And that general eventually makes it back to the Union lines, if you were wondering. Edwin Stoughton is not really outright fired. He's put somewhere else, right? He's no longer going to really be operating in this area. I had to ask Anne-Marie, how did they pull this off? Were they in disguise or what? Mosby and, and later his men, they all insisted that at all times they wore the Confederate uniform. They were being as above board and following the rules of combat, you know, the way that you're supposed to. With that being understood, though, there was a certain amount of subterfuge. This instance, it was early March, it was like March 8th, 9th. The weather was very bad. I think that ended up being in their favor, too. 
number one, visibility is low when you're sneaking around. Number two, when you think about pickets or people being on the lookout, they're probably miserable and maybe not being as attentive as they might otherwise. The other thing that was the biggest point in John Mosby's favor was that he had a man, they called him Big Yankee Ames. And this was a man who had actually fought with the Union. He was he was from New York originally, and he left the Union earlier in 1863 and offered to be a guide for Mosby for this encounter. And so he was able to, in sneaking past, if they were asked to identify themselves, Big Yankee Ames would say, oh, I'm with the 5th New York, and they would sneak on through. So there was some sneakery. But Mosby would always avow that he was playing by the rules. As the spectacular coup made headlines, Mosby was busy arguing guerrilla warfare was the way to go. He's promoted to the rank of major. And this is when Mosby's rangers begin to conduct a campaign of lightning raids on Union supply lines. The area Mosby's rangers patrol is in Northern Virginia, between the Potomac River and the Rappahannock. Kind of a no man's land during the Civil War. There are many different occupying armies that come back and forth. There are only a few major battles fought when you think about Winchester way to the west and there are a number of battles there. And then of course Manassas to the east. And then in between that is a really just, I like to think of it as just waves that periodically wash over the Loudoun Valley. And that is going to be Mosby's domain. They even call it, you know, during and, and shortly after the Civil War, they call it Mosby's Confederacy. Because it's this kind of half lawless land and, and Mosby and the Rangers are going to be a significant force there, even though they're not a large military force. Many historians now say that Mosby's greatest contribution to the war was this mythical and psychological presence in Battleground, Virginia. And after two devastating losses for the Confederates in Gettysburg and the fall of Vicksburg in early July 1863, Robert E. Lee has left Pennsylvania and morale is low. Lee has moved back down south. He's going to try and get to the other side um, of the Rappahannock River, again, using the Blue Ridge as a screen. And General Meade is going to come down into Loudoun, Fairfax counties, into Fauquier County, kind of moving south and kind of creating a, a stream, a long stream of not just army and cavalry, but also all of the supplies that it takes to run an outfit like that. <music> Enter Mosby's Rangers. This is the 43rd Virginia's moment to shine. It's not exactly a campaign around the end of July up until the 28th of 1863, but it's a series of successful raids. He has this huge army and supply network to pick off of. They're going to be very successful at doing that. And again, Mosby's goal, and what he has always outlined, is that his goal is not necessarily to capture X number of prisoners or X number of wagons or X number of horses, but his goal is to distract X number of soldiers 
from actually being able to function on the front. Mosby and the 43rd would sometimes strike all at once, and then they'd go silent for days, sinking back into the shadows. One group of rangers surprises a couple of federal cavalrymen who are like, they're like napping in a field. And the rangers, you know, surprise them and are about to take them prisoner when a couple of federal infantrymen spring up and start shooting. So the rangers run away, but then only a couple miles away at the same time, another group of rangers is capturing 47 federal prisoners and like a dozen horses and three wagons. Meanwhile, not too far from there at General Howard's headquarters, the federal United States general, the general has just packed up and left the headquarters, which is a, a home, and one of his aides is there finishing a note when Mosby Ranger Smith runs into the house, you know, up to this aide, and the aide says, well, you've got me, and Smith says, yes, I have, and he says, so who are you with, and the ranger replies, I'm with Mosby. And the historical record basically intimates with us that the aide kind of face palms. You know, of course, Mosby got me. It's a little bit embarrassing to be snatched up by the Rangers. So she's basically saying he got Mosby'd. I know this is not a historical term, but I'm going to make it one for the podcast. There were a couple of people who said, you know, it's like finding a needle in a haystack, trying to find Mosby out here in the landscape. Some people would call it like, oh, the slog after Mosby, because it, like, it never ends. He's always up to something. On the 24th, it's a similar scene where a bunch of these Pennsylvanians are out picking blackberries. They stray a little too far, you know, from the picket line and boom, the rangers are there and the Pennsylvanians get scooped up. It's not a one-sided affair. Sometimes the rangers would have to scatter and run, but Mosby's men were definitely getting the better end of these escapades. Towards the end of the month, on the 28th itself, we kind of see a tally being taken of how successful, you know, the last couple of weeks have been picking off General Meade's army because they have to send the prisoners somewhere. The Rangers are only a handful of men. They can't commit the manpower to, like, erect a formal prison to take care of all of these people or to parole them or exchange them. They did have an informal prison camp set up, it was called Camp Spindle in the Bull Run Mountains. On July 28th, one of the rangers, well, I guess a number of rangers are sent down to Culpeper to exchange 141 prisoners that this band of rangers has managed to snap up. But that's not all. They've also, of course, had been able to snag up 123 mules or horses and 12 wagons, three of which were destroyed. And it's interesting, you know, these wagons that the Confederates are snapping up, a lot of them are not federal army wagons full of supplies. A lot of them are private sutlers. So these are private businessmen that have their wagons loaded up with goods that were they are trying to sell to federal soldiers, right? Things like canned foods or tobacco even, or playing cards or, you know, whatever it might be. You never know what you're going to get if you capture one of these wagons. Who knows what's going to be in it? 
And Mosby's men sometimes shared the spoils of these wagons with the Union prisoners. These are just regular, everyday soldiers. They don't necessarily always have the money to buy Civil War delicacies from the settlers. And so there's a description by one of the rangers of these Union soldiers just going to town on the spoils from these wagons and like eating oysters and drinking wine and, you know, going nuts because they can. It's July, hot and miserable in Virginia. The roads are dusty. It's kind of chaotic and, and messy and stressful as you're trying to outmaneuver each other. And then interspersed with these kind of moments of haha, where we've captured the wagons and we're having a feast. That summer, there's also a wagon train captured in Fairfax Courthouse that notably had ice cream on it. According to legend, you know, the men just went bananas about this ice cream. They were scooping it into their hats. They couldn't eat anymore, so they were trying to take it with them, and they were getting brain freeze. And then on their way back out of Fairfax Courthouse, they pick up not only another wagon train, but then an ambulance train. So plenty of prisoners in an ambulance train. They're trying to haul everybody out further west where, you know, their, their safe houses are, where they can get all of this loot and all these prisoners out of the way. And then... The 2nd Massachusetts Cavalry, the Union Cavalry, shows up and scatters it all. So they went through all that work and they got all these wagons together and then, you know, they lost it all in the space of a day or two. This makes you think of bandits or pirates, something we don't hear much about in the Civil War. So Grey Ghost ends up being the nickname that sticks the longest, but there are a number of terms that are being used. The Prince of Barillas, you know, bandits, as you said, some pirates and horse thieves in the Northern papers, you know, he's snatching stuff up and it, to some people, it doesn't look like it's very gentlemanly or soldierly. Another Northern writer calls him the Panther of the Valley, which I think is very, very romantic kind of a term. And so Grey Ghost becomes one of those things that even before he's being called the Grey Ghost, there are elements of that in public discourse about him. Not only is he hard to find and hard to track down, but it seems like every other article about Mosby written in Northern papers is speculation that Mosby has been shot and killed. But then he shows up two weeks later and he's still alive. He's got this phantom-like quality. Don't get me wrong. The Union tries to track him down in those two and a half years he's active and the 43rd are together. It's amusing, and I hate to say that, it's a war. It's not all ice cream, you know, and hijinks, but it's also one of the interesting things that war or some things that happen during war can be humorous at the same time that they're awful. Like scooping water from a stream, Mosby slipped through the Union's grasp time and time again. They never caught him. They did shoot him twice, but he survived. And he never surrendered. Not even after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. He didn't surrender the 43rd, instead he disbanded them. And some people believe that this is a big middle finger, you know, to the federal government and to the end of the war. 
But it was also a practical choice because since they were a partisan unit, they weren't part of the regular army, they were a partisan unit, a lot of their actions, while technically legal in in terms of the laws of martial conduct, it was kind of a gray area for what you do with these partisan men. Mosby himself had a price on his head, $5,000 in 1865. And so at first he was going to go further down south to join General Johnston's army before finding out that Johnston had, had also surrendered. So Mosby, knowing that the war was over, but knowing that he might still be in trouble, he laid low. Something he was good at, hiding, this time in Lynchburg. And it was his wife who petitioned Ulysses S. Grant and got him pardoned. Anne-Marie says this was the beginning of an unlikely friendship between the pair, the thorn in the side of the Union, Mosby, and the heroic general, Grant. Certainly a patronly relationship through the rest of Mosby's life. Mosby's view of the world morphed and changed over time, actually as much as his campaigns did in 1863. He was not a fan of the carpetbaggers being northern individuals who would come down just to, in his mind, plunder the south. He was all in favor of folks coming from the north and settling down and making farms and starting businesses. He was all in favor of that. But there were other folks who would come in to try and see what piece of Virginia they could carve out for themselves and send back home or just, you know, leave and not actually invest it back in the community. While he considered himself a Democrat, he ended up campaigning for Grant in 72 and in 76, and that made him a lot of enemies. Imagine it, this gray ghost that plundered the Union for years is now supporting a candidate who helped orchestrate the destruction of the Confederacy seven years after the war. He was still someone who was respected in the area. They wanted him to be Colonel Mosby forever. You know, they wanted him to be one of them, but to those people that meant supporting a Democrat in the election. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted someone who could actually bring the union back together, you know, in a more concentric way, even if you didn't always believe in every single one of the policies. And so famously, Living in Warrington at that time, working as a lawyer, Mosby was shot at by just a member of the public because he had these supposed Republican sympathies. After his wife and youngest son passed away in 1876, Mosby decides to start a new chapter for himself. He goes to Hong Kong. Grant helps him, you know, get a consulship and then helps him work out on the West Coast. You know, he's working for the Land Bureau. He works for the Southern Pacific Railway out there for Leland Stanford. And for like 20 years, he's out in California. It's one of the things that I think with time and distance, his thoughts and some of the things he says about the war changes a little bit. And I think that's very interesting. His views on slavery changed over time. Some of his earliest documented opinions have to do with the 1860 election just before the Civil War. 
basically he believes in the institution of slavery, but he believes that each new state should be able to decide for themselves whether they are slaveholders or not. Whereas the more popular opinion in Virginia at the time is that slaveholders should be able to bring their slaves with them wherever they are and slavery will be legal there no matter what. But just after the Civil War, things were so roiled up and, and difficult, Mosby did have some reservations. There was a lot of fear in the South about being ruled by newly freed Black men and women. I think Mosby felt some of that fear, but then again, with the passage of time, the physical distance you know, that Mosby had traveled in the interim, towards the end of his life, he did not feel that way. He didn't feel that threat, and he acknowledged that slavery was wrong, it was good that the South had lost the war. The Mosbys were enslavers themselves. There was a man by the name of Aaron Burton, an enslaved man who lived with Mosby since childhood, who was with Mosby for his entire war career. And after the war, I don't know Aaron's story fully, but I know that towards the end of his life, Mosby was still sending money to Aaron, who was living in Maine. I think of it as a, as a token of friendship and responsibility that Mosby felt. Mosby did feel after the war that, you know, slavery was wrong. We are better off as a country now that slavery is illegal. Mosby did not see eye to eye with his fellow veterans and their lost cause beliefs. In a letter from 1894, he insisted, quote, I always understood that we went to war on the account of the things we quarreled with the North about. I never heard of any other cause of quarrel than slavery. In other words, in his view, it was always about slavery. And like many from his time in history, he's a man of contradictions. He said that it was the most noble cause that it had ever been fought for, but then he also said, it's good that our side lost. We're better off. So he is, he is a man who has said and thought both of those things, which is another reason I say that if you already think one thing, you could use Mosby to support that, but that wouldn't be the complete picture of his life. July 28th, 1863. The gray ghost of the Confederacy steps out of the shadows once more to pillage, capture, and disrupt the Army of the Potomac. John Singleton Mosby left a legacy of chaos for Union troops. He never surrendered, never gave up, never quite played by the rules. He died in 1916 after a long life at the age of 82. Of his exploits in the war, he wrote, It is sweet and becoming to die for one's country, but whoever has seen the horrors of a battlefield feels that it is far sweeter to live for it. This week in history, on August 1st, 1920, the mother of modern medicine was born in Virginia. A woman mired in mystery for decades, 
known only as HeLa, the code name given to the world's first immortal human cells, her cells. Unknowingly cut from her body just months before she died. Her real name is Henrietta Lacks. We don't know a lot as historians about the very early history of her life, but we know that she was born Loretta Pleasant and her nickname was Henny. And at some point she changed her name to Henrietta. That's the voice to another new guest on How We Got Here. I'm Dr. Karen Rader. I'm a professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. I teach and do research on the history of American biomedicine and science and science museums and science education. Karen is a transplant to Virginia, but not from far away, Baltimore. This is where I gush about Maryland again, but I'll spare you. Maryland's a complicated place. <laughs> Karen started out as a biology major, but quickly became interested in bioethics. She even wrote a book about the history of the laboratory mouse. We asked Karen to help us tell the story of Henrietta Lacks because the ethics of what happened to Lacks are going to stay with you. After all, she's been called immortal. Her cells continue to multiply in labs around the globe. She was born in Roanoke. Early in her life, her mother died in childbirth in 1924, and her father moved with his 10 children, of which she was one, to Clover, Virginia, where he divided them among relatives to be raised. Henrietta was raised by her grandfather, who was also looking after another grandchild, Henrietta's cousin, uh, David, who was known as Day. Henny and Day were married in Halifax County, Virginia, on August 10, 1941. And Day brought the family north to Baltimore. He moved to Maryland to work at Bethlehem Steel, which had a thriving plant in the wake of World War II in an area called Sparrows Point. The couple had five children, Lawrence, Elsie, David Jr., Deborah, and Joseph. They lived in Baltimore and they were living in Baltimore when right before her fifth pregnancy, Henrietta had sensed a knot and had some bleeding. And there was evidence of a lump on her cervix after the birth of that fifth child. She was referred to the gynecology department at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. She ended up at Johns Hopkins in part because Johns Hopkins was the only hospital in Baltimore that treated black patients. Crownsville State Hospital at the time was the hospital for the Negro insane. And so that that's obviously not appropriate for gynecological disorders. Her doctor, Howard Jones, cut off a small piece of the tumor and sent it to the pathology lab. Diagnosed her with malignant epidermoid carcinoma of the cervix. It was stage one. But because of how she was diagnosed, she was treated uh, with the standard treatment of the time, which was radium tubes. They were known as BRAC plaques. They were inserted into her cervix. She had to keep returning to the hospital for radiation. At some point during those treatments, two more small pieces of Henrietta's cervical tumor 
were removed. So that sample was passed on to physician George Gay. So George and Margaret Gay were researchers at Johns Hopkins Hospital trying to develop tissue culture. Tissue culture was a massive enterprise in the history of biomedicine in the 1950s. And her cells were contributed to that effort without her knowledge. At only 31 years old, Lax died at Johns Hopkins on October 4th 1951. On the day of her death, or shortly thereafter, George Gay went on television announcing that he had found a cell line that was prolific, that would reproduce on its own, and that he was using that as the basis for what he called a fundamental study to learn a way by which cancer can be completely wiped out. Cells cultured from other tumor cells up until that point in time would only survive a few days. However, Henrietta's tumor cells did something researchers had never seen before. The cells could be kept alive and grow. Cell culture was sort of the holy grail of biomedical research in the 50s. And the predominant barrier to cell culture was that when you take cells out of whatever body from which they come, it's a tricky business trying to keep them alive. So Henrietta cells are immortal in the sense that kept dividing. So cancer cells are already by definition growth gone awry. Her cells uh, were very aggressive multipliers. And so that's what scientists mean when they say they're immortal. They just keep dividing and dividing and dividing. And they live on through cell culture which is perpetuated by biomedical research. So HeLa cells were essentially marketed to the public and to biomedicine as a way to have a tumor in culture against which various treatments could be tested. George Gay called this cell line HeLa using the H-E and the L-A from Henrietta Lack's name, even though she never knew her cells were being used for research. The HeLa cell line was vital to the development of the polio vaccine and drugs for treating herpes, leukemia, influenza, hemophilia, and Parkinson's disease. Scientists from around the globe have used them for research on cancer, AIDS and gene mapping, in vitro fertilization, even to test the effects of radiation and toxic substances. I've seen an estimate that scientists have grown 20 tons of her cells and that there are over 11,000 patents involved in using HeLa cells. So that's a massive material and intellectual contribution, absolutely. Her cells were commercialized and have generated millions of dollars in profit for the medical researchers who patented her tissue. But for the Lacks family, her surviving children didn't know the cell cultures existed until 20 years after her death. From 1970s to 2010, there wasn't much movement in terms of the bioethics of doing right by the Lacks family, even though at least some members of the Lacks family knew But before we get into how that changed over time, we need to understand the history of what transpired. I think it's important to balance teaching 
the history of the controversy of exploitation and victimization of the Lax family, both financially and materially, with the story of biomedical successes that HeLa cells have led to, but also the ways in which African-Americans themselves have had countless instances of accomplishments, activism around health. So it's important to sort of not only balance the story of the exploitation of the material resources of the Lax family against the breakthroughs, but it's important to think about that in the context of other ways in which African-Americans were also involved in their health and healthcare. This case illustrates the racial inequities that were, and in some ways still are, embedded in U.S. research and healthcare systems. Lax was a black woman, and the hospital where her cells were taken was one of only a few that provided medical care to black people. There's an important editorial by Vanessa Northington Gamble in which she argues that none of this is happening in a vacuum. Because black families are subject to structural racism in the healthcare system, in Henrietta's case, you know, really having only one hospital that she could go to for treatment because there was so much prejudice around segregation in hospital environments. And the ways in which African-Americans themselves push back against these systems. And you can think of everything from Dr. Daniel Hale-Williams. Daniel Hale-Williams opened the nation's first Black-controlled hospital in 1891 in Chicago. You can think all the way forward to the Black Panthers, which the Black Panthers are not something you associate with healthcare, but one of their first efforts in the late 1960s in California to help the Black community was to recognize that they were in need of clinics. They were in need of those clinics for basic healthcare, but also because diseases more common in the African-American community were not being recognized by biomedicine. So something like sickle cell anemia is a disease for which the African-American population disproportionately struggles. And that's something that wasn't getting appropriate attention through biomedical research. The Black Panther clinics paid special attention to that condition. Thalassemia, there are others. So Vanessa Gamble argues that this is an important context too, that it's not just that Black bodies were exploited, although they were, And it's not just that Black families were disempowered, but that there were other things happening in the Black community to sort of push back against the structural prejudice and really create a healthcare system for themselves that was driven by Black community goals and priorities. Science writer Rebecca Skloot first brought national attention to Lack's story in 2010 with the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Karen Rader uses the book and a document called the Belmont Report to teach her students about the ethics of what happened to the Lax family. The Belmont Report articulates an ethical principle called respect for persons. Informed consent, something you've probably heard of before. Informed consent is itself a complicated thing because Many scientists I've talked to express the frustration that they would love to be able to inform families of all the possible uses of their cells or their samples at the moment of extraction. But the problem is from the perspective of science, that's an ongoing development. 
So how do you balance telling folks, these are the cells, this is what we're going to use them for now, in the case of George and, and Margaret Gay cancer research. But later on, Henrietta Lacks's cells became important for other things, right? Not necessarily things they would have anticipated in the moment of taking them. So informed consent is a complicated thing, but really sort of having moments in the process of interacting with families and donors to sort of let them know when and where and how the samples are being sold. None of the biotechnology or other companies that profited from the HeLa cells passed any money back to the Lacks family. For decades after her death, doctors and scientists repeatedly failed to ask her family for consent, even when they revealed Lacks' name or gave out her medical records. It came to a head when a German laboratory published the genome of the HeLa cells. When the German laboratory published this without their consent, the Lacks family pushed back and they objected and they said, no, <laughs> this is not right. This has never been right. This cannot be right now. This data is our family's property, our family's business. And they insisted that the NIH work with them. So the National Institutes of Health funds much of biomedical research in America. And they made a deal with the Lacks family to have a process of basically controlled dispersion of the information. That researchers, in order to gain access to the HeLa genome, would have to come through the, N the NIH, apply, tell everyone why they were using the genetic data. And the Lacks family would know at that moment where things were going, what was being done. This was an important condition for the Lacks family because they said they didn't want to entirely restrict access to the genome. They understood that this was very important for progressing medical research. On the other hand, <laughs> they didn't want everything just to sort of be out there for free because they felt like that was the exploitation that had gotten them to this moment. A moment even captured in an Oprah Winfrey movie made about Henrietta Lacks and her cells. So that's a level of exposure and, and discussion that's incredibly important. Over the last decade, the Lacks family and the National Institute of Health have worked to establish more concrete rules about consent. In 2015, Francis Collins and the Deputy Director of Science Outreach and Policy, Kathy Hudson at the NIH, published an article called Bringing the Common Rule into the 21st Century. And I think the rules governing the ethical conduct of research involving humans were not a total free-for-all, but they definitely weighted things in favor of the scientists. And the idea was basically that the value of the research particularly once something had left the human body, whether it was by surgery, whether it was by a blood draw that you had agreed to, things that had left the human body were more valuable to research for promoting the common good than they were to that individual human. That's why I say it wasn't a total free-for-all. There were some sort of moments where patients pushed back but the system was heavily weighted in terms of the, the biomedical researchers' need to gain knowledge to benefit the common good over the need of patients and donors to have control over their, their own materials. Consent has changed, 
because of the lack of consent from Henrietta. But the question remains, is there still more work to be done? August 1st, 1920. She wore red nail polish and dressed stylishly. She was a mother to five. She loved to dance and cook. She died at just 31 years old from cervical cancer. But Henrietta Lacks lives on. Her cells, a bedrock of medical research. Her greatest legacy may still be attainable, transforming the relationship between researchers and their human subjects. It's time now for the saddest affair I have witnessed in this war. In the bright world to which I go. Those are the words of Union General Ulysses S. Grant about the Battle of the Crater. And if you are instantly wondering how a crater ended up on a battlefield, big enough for the battle to be named after it, brace yourself for this explosive story. It's his own harrowing event to get to that day. <laughs> it was July 30th, 1864. The siege of Petersburg was ongoing. Months and months of a stalemate. Petersburg, Virginia is by June of 1864, really in the target of the federal armies commanded by Ulysses S. Grant. Nobody knows more about this than the Dabneys of Dinwiddie, specifically Park Ranger Emmanuel Dabney at Petersburg National Battlefield. He's been at the park now for 20 years, a native of Southside, Virginia. He told us two years ago to come back and talk to him when we were going to visit the Battle of the Crater. So here we are. Basically, the Union Army showed up at Petersburg's doorstep in June, hoping to capture the city and its critical rail lines. And this was the back door to Richmond, just 25 miles south of the capital of the Confederacy. After attacking twice and failing to take the city, Grant's army sits outside the door. It's in it for the long haul. Federal troops in the Army of the Potomac will settle in to their own constructed earthworks, man-made defenses on the east side of Petersburg. And Confederate troops led by Robert E. Lee and Pierre Beauregard are going to settle into their Confederate earthworks to try to protect their important city, Petersburg. It really didn't take terribly long for intense sharpshooting and artillery firings to become the norm around Petersburg in the summer of 1864. As the siege wore on, Grant's men sought a way to break the impasse. That's when Colonel Henry Pleasance of the 48th Pennsylvania Infantry got an idea. 
his troops and the others were situated east of Petersburg and thought that it might be possible to mine the Confederate position opposite of them. You heard right. Pleasance, who was a railroad engineer, proposed digging a mine from the Federal lines under the high ground to the Confederate line at a position called Elliott's Salient. I asked Emanuel, is this a crazy idea? Because it certainly sounds like it is. No. <laughs> mining had been used in sieges before, and in fact, Ulysses Grant had used mining operations during the siege of Vicksburg in the summer of 1863. So it's not too crazy. The crazy part becomes when the reality of how long this mine is going to have to be it will become the longest mine used in military history up, up until that time. So, Pleasance proposed this idea up the chain of command. He was just a regimental officer, temporarily in charge of a brigade, and he finds support from his corps commander, Ambrose Burnside. For listeners who don't know, Ambrose Burnside had previously commanded the Army of Potomac and superior officer to the man who was in the summer of 1864, the then commander of the Army of Potomac, George Meade. Burnside's probably greatest mistake of the Civil War was the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. So he had been removed from that position, shifted around, now he's in charge of the Ninth Corps of the Army of Potomac. And Burnside thinks that Pleasant's idea is a solid idea, so Burnside takes it up his chain of command. They are not as enthusiastic about the idea, but they don't completely stop moving forward with it. By June 25, 1864, the miners in the 48th Pennsylvania Infantry begin construction of this military mine. It's worth noting that many of the men in this unit grew up inside mines in what is sometimes called the coal state. Henry Reese, a sergeant in the 48th Pennsylvania Infantry, was really going to be the, the mastermind behind the digging of the mine. His plan was to dig a main shaft underneath the Confederate position with two short gallery tunnels alongside it, those were meant for listening, to find out if the men in the gray were digging tunnels of their own. The finishing touch was packing the main tunnel with thousands of pounds of gunpowder and lighting a fuse, but the process would take weeks. And so those miners were gonna be tasked with getting the earth from underground out. Pleasance has requested a number of tools, including wheelbarrows, pickaxes, that will never arrive. The men were forced to use what they could find to get all of this earth extracted from the hillside. They will take the army's hardtack ration boxes and nail to the side hickory sticks and they're going to have to hand cart this earth out of the mine. And think about it. This mining operation has to be secretive. They can't just have a giant pile of dirt growing by the day. 
they're going to have to do something with it to not arouse suspicion from the Confederates watching their every move. You know, there are no mountains here in Petersburg, and certainly no pop-up mountains. Ultimately, they extract 18,000 cubic feet of earth from, from the mine project. That's like moving 1.6 million pounds of dirt, give or take, often with boxes nailed to hickory sticks. So how do you hide all that dirt? You're gonna have to move it to the rear, use it in the sort of overnight hours to add to their earthworks. And that's an important part of this is where the mine is being constructed. There is a forward line of earthworks that had been established. This area became known as the horseshoe because it stuck out ahead of uh, much of the rest of the Union. Earthworks was just ridden with sharpshooting activity, but there were people there. So the earthworks are sort of like a cover for the mining activity. The troops are constantly using the mine dirt in these trenches overnight fortifying them for better protection from snipers during the day. A fear of a collapse was certainly on the minds of these men, so wood was brought in to shore up the walls and ceiling. This was not just a hole in a hillside. This mine would ultimately be nearly 511 feet long, with two galleries alongside it. So, after calming the concerns of a collapse, the next problem to solve was ventilation. Wooden trough basically is sort of laid along the right hand side of the mine shaft, and it's going to be extended as the miners go further into the earth. There is going to be an iron grate placed in with a fire built on the inside, and that's going to draw the stale air sort of back to it, and they, of course, open up this chimney basically directly behind the Union forward line. And there are people on this line all day and all night, so no one on the Confederate side would ever suspect anything simply because there was smoke behind the Union lines. That was not going to be an uncommon feature. It's an all-day, seven-day-a-week operation by the 48th Pennsylvania. They work in shifts several hours long. And remember, it's July in Petersburg. Temperature generally ex exceeded 95 degrees, so it is hot work wherever you are. And of course, it's even you know hotter and harder when you're moving underground during this time. In the end, these men work for nearly a month until July 27th. Again, the shaft itself was 510.8 feet to be exact. The left gallery was 37 feet. The right gallery was 12 inches longer. The mine inside is about four feet wide at the bottom, two feet wide at the top. No one is standing upright inside of it. And of course, that lumber that's being brought from the rear is sort of lining the interior of the mine. For people who want to come out to Petersburg National Battlefield, where we protect the crater battlefield, you can get a sense of how the mine looked. We have recreated the entrance to the mine. You can get some sense of the interior just for a few feet before the first uh, collapse that's happened in the year since the Civil War. They're lighting their way through the mine using candles and lanterns. 
which will provide some limited amount of light beneath the Earth. On July 28th, the mine was packed with 8,000 pounds of gunpowder. It wasn't exactly the amount of gunpowder Pleasance requested. Once again, he ran into issues with supplies. Some of why Colonel Pleasance is running into problems with his plan is that General Meade, West Point graduate, has his West Point graduate chief engineer on his staff, and that engineer is not confident that this is going to work. And so it appears that General Meade's uh, chief engineer has some role in why the mining tools don't arrive, the wheelbarrows don't arrive, some do eventually get there. But the gunpowder is its own snafu. Pleasant's requested 12,000 pounds of gunpowder. Only 8,000 pounds of gunpowder would be authorized by General Meade, so that's what he's going to get. The issues wouldn't stop there. He also requested a safety fuse, a superior fuse for blasting that would protect against moisture. Instead, Pleasance gets several links of common blasting fuse. Which then means he has to splice the fuse to reach the depth that it needs to inside of the mine. And so he also expected that the kegs of gunpowder were going to arrive in one format and arrive in a smaller format. And so this sort of work that he had planned is derailed by all of this other stuff that appears to be going on at Army headquarters. But Pleasance and his men persevered, determined to see their bombastic plan through. Once gunpowder is in the two chambers and he needs a Confederate position, we're going to put this fuse out so it can sort of run beyond and they have to backpack the interior of the mine. That needed to be done to make sure the blast didn't come back out the way the troops had been going in. Some six hours later, everything is in place. Throughout this time that Pleasance troops have been working on the mine, they know or at least suspect that the Confederates are busy with their own mining operation. And this countermining is a direct relationship to the Federal mine. The Confederates did eventually get suspicious of the Union and all that digging. One Confederate artillerist, Edward Porter Alexander, out inspecting Confederate lines on June 30th, so just five days after the Federals had started their mine, he's at this Confederate position. It's a Confederate earthwork that sticks out a little ahead of the main part of the Confederate line. And he thought it was sort of strange that Federal troops were trying to build earthworks in the distance during the daylight. He thought about the intense amount of sharpshooting that seemed to be directed at this particular position on the line. And then he thought to his own military training, and he thought, perhaps they are trying to run a mine. Uh, General Alexander left the, the field, made a mistake that no one wanted to make around Petersburg in 1864-1865, taking a shortcut. 
a short cut without Alexander wounded, fortunately for him, not seriously. But as he sort of made his way to go get medical treatment, he informed one of Robert E. Lee's staff members of his suspicion. Lee is also a West Point graduate, an engineer, and he's not quite so sure that this would be happening based on the space that was between the two lines. But by July 8th or so, Confederate engineers are out in several places, running countermines and listening galleries themselves. The Confederates don't dig deep enough into the earth to find the Union mine shaft. Nevertheless, they are looking. <laughs> and since they can't seem to find this Union mine, the next best thing was to prepare for an above-ground attack. And, and that's going to have very important consequences for the Confederate defense during the actual battle. And it's going to have some disastrous consequences for Confederate troops during the battle. On July 30th, 1864, we get to the explosion. About 3.30 in the morning, Colonel Pleasance went into the mine, lit the fuse himself, and by 4 o'clock, nothing had happened. Eerie silence filled the summer morning air. You can imagine the anticipation from Union soldiers waiting, waiting, waiting for an explosion unlike anything many of them had ever seen. The Confederates, unaware, of what lie in wait beneath them. For hundreds, instantaneous death was minutes away. General Meade was starting to get agitated. Pleasance thought perhaps the fuse had gone out and because of the splicing. And two men went into the mine to figure out what was going on. The fuse did go out. So these men relit it and got out of there. 4.44 a.m., the mine explodes. The ground shook and rumbled. Troops described it like an earthquake. Dirt and debris filled the sky. In that moment, about 352 Confederate troops from South Carolina and Virginia artillerists were killed in the explosion. The division commander on the Confederate side, Bushrod Johnson, estimates that 100,000 cubic feet of earth was sent into the sky by the explosion. Tongue of flame just shoots into the sky. They're not all in agreement about how far the earth went into the sky. And of course, these people you know, destroyed bodies, the equipment that these men had behind the Confederate lines. Earthworks are held up with wooden elements. So now this stuff is flaming through the sky and all of this debris, of course, has to come back down. It will take about five or so minutes, potentially as long as 10 minutes for this debris settling to end in the federal army will open fire with their cannon mortars. When the dust settled, a crater 130 feet long, 60 feet wide, and 30 feet deep scarred the landscape. 
A total of 352 Confederates were killed by the blast, and then the Union attack got underway. Federals have crossed about a two and a half mile front, about 180 pieces of artillery, and they're going to start sending their ammunition across toward Confederate positions. As they advanced, many Yankee soldiers plunged more than two stories into the crater. By around five o'clock or so in the morning, we have federal troops in the area of this now exploded Confederate artillery position. It's filled with dead, it's filled with some people who are wounded, and miraculously it's got people in it who are not hurt at all, but they're half buried in the earth. Federal troops, despite these people being their enemy for the last several years, stop and start to dig out Confederate and provide water and aid to those who are, are wounded. A moment of humanity on the battlefield before the hours of struggle with this man-made crater begins. Is that the gaping hole in the plan, so to speak? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, once you get down 25 feet, how do you get back up? The full Confederate force awakened by the blast. They recovered quickly after their initial shock. They pour fire from both flanks into the crater at Burnside's men. A literal moment in battle of fish in a barrel. The Confederates had expertly positioned their cannon and moved additional artillery batteries nearby to respond in the event that something were to happen. Keeping in mind the South Carolina Brigade manning this position just got exploded. We lost over 300 men. So they're a little caught off guard, but there's other infantry support going to the south and north that's going to start to provide some additional firepower back towards this area. It's not enough troops to push the Union back, but it's enough to slow them down and contain the breakthrough. Amid all this madness, there's one key change to the plan that had dire consequences. After the explosion, Burnside was going to have his division of black soldiers take the high ground at Blanford Cemetery. But Burnside's plan was changed by Army of the Potomac Commander George Meade and confirmed by Ulysses Grant before the attack got underway. By 8.30 in the morning, the U.S. colored troops, as they were called in this time, were sent into the fray around the crater. With the movement of the U.S. colored troops on the battlefield, they go into battle with very different backgrounds than their white comrades, of course. Their role in the war is one in which they see themselves as people who are liberators, either themselves or other enslaved people, free people who have been born in the North and have joined these units. And all who sort of see this as a moment to prove their military prowess, as most of these regiments have not seen a lot of action in 1864. According to the federal government, just Back in 1857, none of these people of African descent had any rights that white men were bound to respect. That was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court then. 
who was still Chief Justice in 1864. Picture it. Black men wearing military uniforms, many not long freed from the bonds of slavery, out on the battlefield beneath the American flag. And they have recent real belief to see and know that the Confederate Congress's law that had been passed in May of 1863, calling these soldiers slaves and insurrection, the white officers leading them were inciting a servile insurrection. That slave insurrections end with a lot of black people did. This was the case in the Caribbean and in this country. And fresh in their memories, a battle in Tennessee called Fort Pillow. Just over three months earlier, Confederates massacred around 300 U.S. colored troops who had surrendered. Instead of treating them as prisoners of war, the black men were slaughtered. So the Battle of Fort Pillow became a battle cry for U.S. colored troops. And they go across this, this narrow space with wounded people and those bullets coming in, as some Union troops described, like hailstorms, there's artillery shells screaming past people's ears. People trying to get off the battlefield. As they go into, as these U.S. colored troops go into the battle, they are screaming, remember Fort Pillow, no quarter, meaning that they don't intend to take prisoners, as retribution to what had happened in Tennessee just a few months before. The U.S. colored troops, one of the, the things that is not really clear even today, is how well trained they were for this assault. Emanuel says it's a sort of misnomer that the entire nine regiments of this division were trained in the month prior to the assault. He says digging into the details himself, a majority of these regiments likely got little to no training. It appears that perhaps one regiment, the 30th U.S. Colored Infantry, had received some training. They are sort of leading off their, their first of the brigades to go in. But when they get to the area of the crater, it is just filled with all these white soldiers and their officers, wounded people, dead people. There's still the debris of battle. It's a piece of clay sitting on the edge of the crater that people describe as large as a small cottage. It's not easy to move through this area, but they do make progress. Ultimately, the U.S. Colored Troops, two brigades that are assaulting, are going to have the the furthest breakthrough of the Federals that day. As Confederates sort of begin launching their first counterattack at 9 a.m., they are enraged to see armed black men shooting at them, promising to take no prisoner. And in some of these Confederate troops in one of the Virginia brigades responding to this have men who are from Petersburg. So this is you know, even more of a thing to them to make sure that they don't lose their home city. The battle devolves into chaos and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Troops from both sides turning their muskets into clubs. The Confederate troops are extremely brutal and honest in their brutality as they bayonet, shoot at point-blank range. They 
are enraged and admit they are enraged more so by the sight of armed black U.S. troops than they are the majority of the white troops that are on the battlefield. There is no other way around it. Racism played a role that morning. A big role. The racism played a major role in how the battle plan is changed, how the battle is fought, how veterans remember the battle, how civilians even, newspaper correspondents. There was even a rumor and stories that were passed down through time that the U.S. colored troops were sent into the battle drunk. Emmanuel Dabney says there is no evidence of that. The only people who were drunk during the battle are white generals. But this pervasive racism you know, that existed in the 19th century and unfortunately continues today helped to tarnish the reputation of these men. Interestingly enough, because of this disaster at Petersburg motivated the Army of the James Commander, the other federal army that surrounds this area, Benjamin Butler, motivated him in September 1864 to use U.S. colored troops to attack Richmond with much better tactical results. There's still a lot of racialized violence and heavy casualties for those men. The rage displayed by Confederates on the battlefield that morning was remembered years later by Petersburg resident George Bernard of the 12th Virginia Infantry. He said the Southerners were, quote, infuriated at the idea of having to fight Negroes. The attack was called off around 11 a.m., but the fighting continued for several hours. By about 2, 2.30, we see the, the shooting die off. As the dust from the battle settles, the Confederates lost 1,500 men. The Federals, 3,826. The greatest amount of those casualties come from the 4th Division, the U.S. Colored Troop Division, about 1,300 men. And they have very high numbers of those who were killed and or missing and never heard from again. The bodies of 331 U.S. colored troops were eventually collected off the crater battlefield, all of them unidentified. But there's no doubt Confederates were desperate to hold on to Petersburg. Confederates are really, really vivid in the days and weeks after the battle as they write home to their wives and sisters and parents and to newspapers about their anger at U.S. colored troops. In the days after the Battle of the Crater, on July 31st and August 1st, the wounded lay with the dead on the battlefield. In 100-degree weather, they had nowhere to go and had to wait for burial trenches to be dug. That's where the dead were placed until after the Civil War. And then the people on both sides kept sort of fighting over this area uh, over the next eight months. The South managed to save Petersburg yet again. For the North, the crater was a debacle. Burnside was treated as a scapegoat and relieved of command, again. Ulysses S. Grant would have to find another way into Petersburg. 
July 30th, 1864, the Union Army lit a fuse under the Confederates, ripping a hole in the ground of a battlefield, igniting vicious, racially charged combat. There was a survivor of the Battle of the Crater from the 39th U.S. Colored Troops, and you should know his name. It's Decatur Dorsey. In the midst of the chaos, this man, born into slavery, planted an American flag on Confederate fortifications. In the height of the brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat, he grabbed the stars and stripes and ran back into the no-man's land of the crater. Dodging bullets and artillery, climbing over the dead and wounded, he raised old glory to rally the Union. The day Confederates wanted their hands around his neck, Decatur Dorsey would survive. His neck later adorned with a Medal of Honor. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa, with some help this week from executive producer Colton Weekly. Thank you, Colton, especially for that last-minute interview you had to conduct for me. And to digital director Kate Albright for smoothing over the sounds and music in this episode, which, by the way, is the longest one we've ever done. Thanks to our guest this week, Park Ranger Emmanuel Dabney with the Petersburg National Battlefield. Always a pleasure. Dr. Karen Rader, a professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. First-timer Anne-Marie Kirialason with the Virginia Piedmont Heritage Area, and Dr. Bill Rasmussen with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Next week on Episode 5. Because who would imagine that, right? I mean, it seems unbelievable that such a thing could happen. The commander of the Confederates offers to resign after a shattering loss. There's probably no event during the war that looms quite as large in historical memory as Gettysburg. Plus, the day a twister touched down in the Tri-Cities. It looked like bombs had just gone off in every car. Carts everywhere, you could see cars on top of cars. Nearly wiping a little town off the map. God save Pocahontas. That's next week on Episode 5. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account, How We Got Here, VA. Follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at HowWeGotHere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.